Father, thank you that we can gather this way and study the confession. Help us as we think about what we are admonished to do, to compare it with Scripture, think about it deeply. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so we are uh, in chapter 30 of the confession, and uh, if you don't have a copy that you carry around with you every day, it's actually in the back of the hymnal. Why don't you carry it around with you every day? Come on, let's get our acts together. We've got to have your copy of the... Yeah, that's right. Why don't you have it memorized? Uh, we're looking at chapter 30, Church Censures, and we're on paragraph 3. So let me read it, and then I think we'll have plenty to think about and talk about. Church censures are necessary for the reclaiming and gaining of offending brethren, for deterring of others from the like offenses, for purging out of that leaven which might infect the whole lump, for vindicating the honor of Christ and the holy profession of the gospel, and for preventing the wrath of God which might justly fall upon the church if they should suffer his covenant and the seals thereof to be profaned by notorious and obstinate offenders. Okay, so a number of clauses here. Um, let's begin with the first, church censures are necessary. Now, there are folks who disagree. Uh, there are folks who think that they're never necessary, that we are all just kind of laws unto ourselves, that we don't belong to uh, a body that uh, we're accountable to. Uh, consequently, we can just live as we please, and if pastor doesn't like it or the session doesn't like it, well, just tough noogies, <laughs> that kind of attitude. Um, now, uh, I don't think any of us think that way, but it's just something that is, uh, I think, more or less common. And there are certain bodies of, of uh, or certain churches that don't really think it's necessary. Um, any thoughts on, on what I just said? Maybe. I think, think people that talk during the service should be greatly punished. Okay. Well, um, <laughs> I appreciate the sentiment, Molly, but we're not going not gonna to do that. Um, it is nice when people listen uh, and refrain from talking unnecessarily, but sometimes a little child will say, Mom, I have to go to the bathroom. That's when I really want them to talk. <laughs> yeah, David. Um, you know, growing up Catholic and then living uh, and then joining a Lutheran church for a while and then coming over to the Reformed <coughs> church, are there any other churches besides the Reformed Church that take church censure seriously? Because I never really saw it until the Presbyterian Church. Yeah, well, I, you know, the Nazarene churches did. You know, we, uh, you know, I exist. Well, this gets into some interesting challenges. So when I was in uh, that world, um, it was an acknowledged practice, but it was, I think, a lot more difficult. And the reason was, um, the churches were uh, governed by boards, not ordained elders, and there would be a kind of cycling on and off. And as a pastor, you found yourself in a situation where because you didn't have people under vows, you didn't have the, 
the kind of the freedom you need to share things that sometimes you need to share with other elders in order to pursue discipline. So often you're kind of like completely on your own. Uh, I remember a, a situation in which, uh, you know, it was unfortunate. There was a, uh, a need to exercise some discipline because uh, a couple was pursuing divorce but they had no biblical grounds. And I was pretty much on my own. Uh, and some of my board uh, just took sides. There was just no sense of, uh, well, you know, we all have a responsibility to uh, do the best we can to encourage reconciliation and you know, see the marriage healed and that kind of stuff. It was more or less, well, pastor, you, you know, um, demonstrated that uh, you don't like so-and-so. And I was like, no, was, <laughs> it was not that at all. <laughs> it's just that that was the party that was pursuing the divorce without any biblical justification. Um, and consequently, I was just kind of out there on my own, you know, trying my best to censure and admonish and that kind of thing. Yeah. Did you guys talk about last week the difference between censure and censor? Censure and excommunication? Oh, no. Well, we're going to get to excommunication, but we did talk about the difference between censure and censor. When you censor, you, you quiet someone, and with censure, you condemn somebody. Censure, what, what practical aspect does that have? Is it mostly coming from the elders on a particular person? Yeah, well, it, you know, we try to follow the biblical pattern. So, as elders, we become aware of things, and as we do, uh, we try to admonish on a personal basis, you know, the people we're talking to. Uh, if things, uh, uh, you know, go from bad to worse, or there's no response, then the elders will, uh, as a session, uh, look to address the situation. And it all depends on who the person is and kind of the nature of the offense and those kinds of things. I guess more pointedly, like what is censure from a practical, like a, like what is actually happening? Is it an official? It seems it, like it, it, again, it has a kind of uh, escalate, yeah. So, you know, when it gets to the point of uh, stating something from the pulpit, you know, uh, the session's judgment on a particular situation, there's been a lot that's gone on before that. It's not like you rush to that, or at least you should. So lastly, censure might actually occur and a lot of people might not even know what's going on. Oh yeah, yeah, sometimes they assume that nothing's going on and there's just tons of stuff going on. But you know, you're not talking about it. It's not like you get up every day and say, oh, and we have all these different people that we're talking. <laughs> but uh, we hope that people assume the best in many situations, because say, let's say a, a, a situation has become a, kind of a, a, something of, common knowledge and you know in a situation like that this the session the elders hope that the church is um, aware that some work is being done it may not got, have gotten to the point where we're ready to talk about it with the congregation we might be at a point where we're willing to say to somebody if, the, if we're asked are you aware of this and say, you can say yeah yeah we, we are and we're working on it that kind of thing but there's You've probably heard the term, the wheels of justice move slowly. They need to. So if you're impatient, um, 
impatience is like a formula for misadministration. <laughs> you know, you, you just have to kind of move at a certain pace, making sure that things are done the right way. And, you know, it could take a long time sometimes for things to play out. Now, sometimes because the nature of the offense is just so public and, and uh, so uh, alarming, uh, you just have to move faster. But, you know, the circumstances warrant a particular approach. Yeah. Um, the church censures, is church referring to the ruling elders and their way they censure, or does it mean anyone in the church, like if I see some random person in the church sitting and I go to talk to them, is that me being part of the church censorship? And also, if you swing around at the end with notorious and obstinate offenders, does the church censorship apply only to great sins, or is it just any little respectable sin? Yeah. Well, I think the first uh, part of the question is we all have a responsibility to look after our brothers and sisters and do the best we can to help them. And sometimes that means talking to them about something we see. Uh, when it comes to the official disciplinary process of the church, that is limited to the elders. Now, you could say that it's like discipline, and it is, you know, because we're all trying to encourage each other and hold each other accountable. But uh, individual members don't have uh, the uh, authority to censure as the church. Uh, what was the second part of the question? Looping it to the end of the statement on notorious and obstinate vendors, yeah. does that mean that the church censorship is really has to do with big and notorious sins? versus just, because we sin every day. Sure, when, yeah. when, where, Where's the line drawn of what is actually appropriate to censure and what's yeah. not appropriate to censure? Yeah, I've made this statement a, you know, a few times. It, it, it depends. <laughs> you know, you have, so when we think about scripture, um, there are actually th three classifications. We like to think of just two. Law and gospel, law and gospel, law and gospel, law and gospel. You remember what the third is? Wisdom. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, you just kind of have to deal with the situation on the, as you find it on the ground, and you do the best you can. You pray for wisdom. You know, let's think about Solomon. Obviously, in you know, his case, you know, he says he needs wisdom to administer justice. But think about how he does that. There's that, you know, uh, famous account of the two women, you know, and... Um, you know, how is he going to know? You know, he doesn't get like a word of knowledge. <laughs> you know, it's not like there's a big sign that appears over the one woman's head and says, this is the one that's at fault. You know, he has to figure out how to, to, to do this. And so very cleverly, he says, okay, we'll just cut the baby in half. <laughs> he doesn't mean it, of course, but they don't know that. And then he says, get me a sword. And so they go for the sword, and then the real mother, you know, obviously because of her love for the child, wants the child to live. The other woman apparently so vindictive that because she lost a child, she doesn't want anybody to have a child, you know, that kind of thing. And then he's able to say, there you go. We know, okay, this is the mother. So that's the kind of thing that is called for a lot more often in the work of church government than I think we appreciate. Uh, as we're dealing with situations, you know, people, um, you know, uh, it's, it's not always so clear-cut. That's, that's why we get paid the big bucks. 
anyway. Uh, other thoughts or questions? Well, let's take a look at the next. Yeah, Mark. Just that it could be presbytery. Oh yeah. Could be censoring as well as general assembly. Could right. be as well in our in our form of church government as it's been applied under this confession. Right. Right. So it's important to remember that because I think um, some of us maybe come from in a, you know non-denominational churches or uh, congregational churches. If the local body, uh, you know, doesn't satisfy your sense of justice, then you're kind of at a loss. You know, what do you do now? I guess you just leave, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas uh, in Presbyterians, uh, Presbyterian form of government, there's a set of courts. We talked a little bit about this, but it's been a while. So the, the lower court is the local court, which is the session. So that's why it's called the session. The court is now in session. And then, um, you know, most of the time we're dealing with really exciting things like uh, what should we paint the bathroom and <laughs> that kind of stuff. But occasionally there'll be, you know, things that are challenging and difficult and have to do with people who are, you know, part of the church who need to be corrected. So there's, there's that. Uh, let's say a party is unhappy with how uh, a matter was resolved. They can appeal to the next court appeal to the presbytery. And I've been on uh, judicial commissions a number of times over the, you know, the, over the years. You know, I've convened them where you know, maybe a, a pastor is being accused of something or uh, an elder or even a session as a, as a body because the judgment that was rendered was not satisfying to somebody. Um, we just had one come up you know, at our latest presbytery so a commission is going to have to, actually a commission was reporting upon, based on a complaint, about, you know, uh, a session made a decision and we, it was, you know, the decision was made by the presbytery following that decision and it was like, if I remember like 10 pages of analysis and that kind of thing and justification for the judgment. That kind of, now let's say you're still not happy. You can appeal to the General Assembly. There's a standing judicial commission and that's all they do. They just, you know, receive complaints uh, and adjudicate them. Now, when you get that far up, you know, it's got to end somewhere. <laughs> you know, maybe all the courts have got it wrong. Well, then we wait for the, you know, the final judge, you know, to, to sort it all out. So uh, we're given a set of reasons why the censures are necessary. The first is for reclaiming and gaining offending brethren. That's a really important one to remember because in the heat of the moment, you're not even interested in that. Let's say you're upset about something. You just want somebody punished, right? Let's say somebody does something to you and it's bad and you're not uh, at all happy, you've been uh, hurt and profoundly, you know, significant way. Um, it, in times like that, you're not looking for reclamation. <laughs> you're looking for vindication. You know, you're looking for punishment. And, and I'm not saying punishment is bad. I mean, I, I, I think it, it's appropriate. But we can't lose sight of the larger purpose. You know, we are here to try to reclaim and gain. 
It's interesting, reclaim and gain. Any thoughts on why they use both terms? Like when I think of gain, it's like you didn't have the person before. You know? So uh, here's, here's something that's kind of interesting. I remember, and this is one of the things that really was important for me to learn at a practical level when it came to this matter. You can't lose what you don't have. A lot of people, you don't have. You really don't. In their own minds, they were never part of the team. <laughs> they, they might have said all the, the, the things, you know, they might have taken all the vows, but they were always holding back. They didn't really mean it. Now, we have to take them at their word, right? But their word was false. Um, and then you address them, and hopefully through the process you gain them, right? So that's, that's something to keep in mind. And so whenever I've, and I've, I, I've done it so often, it's, it's one of these things, it's the least pleasant part of the work, but I've done it, it's gotta be 50 times at least, you know, where I've had to address something with somebody. And, and one of the things I tell myself before I go into it, you can't lose what you don't have. Yep. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but is it a part of a sifting process, maybe, at Candy? Sure. Yeah, uh, I think that's, an, that's a fair way to put it. Um, you know, we're always, could say under trial, uh, just circumstances of life, uh, bring to the surface things, um, kind of reveal the contents of our hearts. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that church discipline is a means of grace. Yes. It's not one of the ordinary means of grace, but it is a means of grace, and that, that's where this first part comes in. Yeah. Those who are who are part of the, in, the, the, the invisible church. Yeah. Um, but um, also those who who may not be uh, converted yet. Yeah. Their hearts are still right. hearts of stone. Yeah, let's think a little bit about uh, some examples in the Bible, in the New Testament even. Uh, you know, we have the betrayal of Peter, right? Uh, and in that uh, episode, um, he's censured even before he's done it. <laughs> you will betray me three times before the, you know, you hear the cock crow. And he's like, no way, no way. The Lord knew his heart better than he did. Um, you know, he made some promises and then he broke them. He betrayed faith and the Lord receives him back, right? Um, and it, with, there's great contrition, but the, there's a very subtle sort of, uh, uh, you could say, uh, admonition or correction. You know, Peter, do you love me? You know, Peter, do you love me? Three times. <laughs> he has to say it three times because he denied him three times. Um, and then later, is like Peter always like upstanding and faultless from that point on? No, there's a point where we're told that, you know, Paul said, I confronted him to his face. I said, you're, you're behaving like a hypocrite, Peter. When these guys from Jerusalem were not here, you were just fine hanging out with all of us. Now you're getting snooty. <laughs> you know, what is it with that? And then Peter has to say, yeah, I, I really need to, to get it, you know, corrected. So even Peter needed, you know, ongoing correction even after the resurrection. And it, so me too, you know, it's not like I've always got it right. I've gotten things wrong. And um, so anyway, uh, but if we have it, if we're doing it in the spirit uh, that is 
uh, you know, pr presented to us here, I think that's really something important. Can't lose sight of. Other thoughts before we go on to the next? So um, deterring of others from like offenses. Okay. People are watching us. Um, sometimes we wish they weren't. Um, sometimes we, we think, I wish you didn't think so highly of me. If you knew me as well as I do, you wouldn't. <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, and you say, um, and you know, that's kind of realistic, but at the same time, it's, it's also necessary for us to look to each other, you know, look to, to older, you know, people in the faith, as for example, and so forth. So we are influencing each other, um, whether we want to or not, and consequently, we need to be held accountable for our behavior because of the influence we have. Any thoughts? I think it's pretty straightforward. Uh, purging out of that leaven, which might infect the whole lump. Now, this is a reference, obviously, to uh, you know scripture. There are actually a number of things to think about here, because when we think about leaven, there's good leaven and there's bad leaven. Um, remember what one of the practices was, uh, you know, when Jews observed the Passover. They go through the house and purge the leaven. So that was like a normal thing that your typical Jewish mother would do. You know, it's her job to kind of like make sure there's no leaven in the house. Now, what's that about? Well, it was a reference to uh, sort of the, the need to be uh, ready to move. So kind of homely sort of way of describing it, but you need to be ready to go when the Lord says go. Alacrity, that's a great word, alacrity. You need alacrity. Sort of, the Lord says move, you're ready to move. Okay, that, that's, you know, if you're waiting for your bread to rise, like I said, it's kind of a homely illustration. Oh, we've got to wait, uh, the bread's not ready. <laughs> but that, that was, uh, now there's another feature to leaven that's kind of creepy if you think about it. And this is also something that is sort of in mind when we think about leaven. When you put the leaven in the dough, it spreads. And you don't see this spread. It just, but it, but it moves through the, the lump. And then you see the effects, you know, with the rising of the dough and stuff like that. But there's this activity that uh, is occurring that you don't see. Um, and that is something that is, uh, runs remarkably parallel to how spiritual influence works. So you can have uh, a kind of positive leaven, you know, leavening everything, or a bad leaven. Remember when the Lord uh, is talking to his disciples following the feeding of the 5,000, might have been the 4,000, but he says to them, you know, beware the leaven of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And immediately, you know, this is like, whenever, one of the great things about the Gospels is like you got the key, keystone cops. It's like, it's like the disciples are the keystone cops. It's almost like uh, they get it exactly wrong every single time, you know? And, you know, they're immediately like, what's he talking about bread for? What's he talking about bread for, you know? And 
And, you know, the Lord says, you morons. <laughs> Not talking about bread. I'm talking about the influence of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. We've got to watch out for that. So we have to be on guard, too, as elders um, when it comes to teaching, right? So let's say, you know, we, we, we see just a lot of, say, health and wealth teaching spreading through our area. And people you know, uh, begin to sort of equate um, faith with never getting sick or faith with getting wealthy, you know, those kinds of things. Those, I don't know if you've ever experienced churches like that or known people like that who believe that kind of stuff. You don't want, that's a leaven. That's, a, that's not a good leaven. You know, we need to be on, on guard against that kind of teaching. Um, it can be very subtle because, you know, there are places in Scripture where we see saints blessed, right? Uh, materially, we see, you know, Christ heal people. But does that mean that we promote a kind of always win, never lose, nothing ever goes bad to you kind of Christianity? No. But that's just one example of a teaching that is kind of 11. But if a person is in the church and promoting maybe a particular uh, practice that is sinful, it's a, it's a leaven that, you know, needs to be addressed. And sometimes, you know, things can go so long without those things being addressed that it really is fatal for a church. Any thoughts or examples? What sort of things have commonly affected churches as we be on to? Where the practices have got been like that? Well, I think that, you know, you, particularly in matters related to, say, sexuality in our day, we see a lot of that. Um, and you have to be really careful because, um, uh, you know, you have to parse out things. So like when you say, um, you know, the gospel is for everyone, or when you say, you know, come just as you are, um, are you in some subtle way maybe implying that there needs, there's no repentance or purity required? And, so, and the next thing you know, you're dealing with impurity in the church and stuff like that. You know, I, I think that just about every church disaster <laughs> that we can think of uh, is, you know, evidence of this. Um, you know, let's say, you know, the stereotypical, the pastor runs off with the secretary, you know, thing. It happens. Um, the only person who wasn't surprised was the pastor in many cases, but sometimes people knew. And did things to kind of cover it up because it would be bad for, you know, our reputation or whatever. Um, well, now your reputation is really bad, right? So it gets us to the, you know, what affects the whole, and vindicating the honor of Christ. Sometimes we have to apply discipline because we don't want to imply that this is, you know, indifferent to Christ. It's very relevant. It reflects poorly on the name. 
you know, and if, you're, if you've been in, involved in ministry at all for very long and you're interacting with people who are obviously looking for things to, to say, to object to the claims of the gospel, they'll bring up all of the things that they've seen and heard, you know, right? Uh, and what do you do? Well, first of all, I say, yeah, those things happen. <laughs> those things happen, but they shouldn't happen. They should be condemned. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that they weren't in that particular situation. Um, so it's tough. It's tough. Well, people are going to this church because there's love. Well, that's great. I'm glad to glad to know well, it. And hopefully, all all of us will 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 have love for each other. Yeah. Now, here's an in interesting thing that uh, I'm glad you brought that up, Molly, because sometimes people put truth and love at ends of a spectrum. The more, the more, more truthful you are, the less loving you are. The more loving you are, the less truthful you are. That's completely nonsense. It doesn't take a whole lot of reflection to realize why it's nonsense. So let's say you know, Molly, I ran over you, but my intentions were perfectly good. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, it, it's, you know, it, it, you get that kind of talk. Um, the way we know how to love people, in other words, the manner in which the love is expressed has to be in touch with reality, right? Truthful. Not just, it's not just about your intentions or how you felt, or the warmth in your heart, or any of that kind of stuff. Now, I'm not saying those things are important. I think they're great. But you end up with a kind of emotive pragmatism. This is one of the things that's really deadly right now. Emotive pragmatism. This is why I think Alistair Begg said what he said. It was emotive pragmatism. What was his, maybe you're not aware of the situation, I probably shouldn't have even brought up, but, well, he's a public figure. You know, when you're in the public eye, you know, you should be subject to examination. So Alistair Begg uh, was asked by a woman, should I attend my grandson's wedding? Uh, uh, he's transsexual or the, marrying a transsexual or something like that. And Alistair Begg said, yes, and bring, bring a gift. And it got out, and then he doubled down on it, and then he tripled down on it. And people are like, what in the world? How is that loving? Well, it gets back to this emotive pragmatism. If it feels loving, it is. Even if it's endorsing something that's really harmful, not just to the people, but to everyone who's present. What it does is over time, it has a way of sort of uh, lowering our defenses, sort of making us less uh, discerning, and it, I mean, do we want these people to live in this sin? Are we endorsing that? You know, let's say somebody said, hey, I'm going to Las Vegas and I'm going to cheat. Uh, you want to come? And say, sure, I love watching people cheat at gambling, <laughs> you know? I'm with you all the way, man. I love you, brother. <laughs> no, you'd say, that's nuts. I'm not going to go with you. In fact, you shouldn't go either. 
So as soon as you get this out of these sort of hot topic areas where there's a lot of social pressure to get you thinking certain ways, it's, it becomes so clear. The only reason there's any fog is because of the social pressure that everybody's feeling today. Anyway, <laughs> um, so the honor of Christ. Um, Maybe give another example of, of where this can kind of get weird. Fiducia supplicans. Are you familiar with the term fiducia supplicans? It was uh, Pope Francis uh, and his judgment on blessing couples. So uh, the uh, entire Roman Catholic world and beyond was up in the furor over this. It's such a subtle thing, you know, the the canon lawyers told us, oh, don't worry, we're not changing our teaching on marriage. Um, but I love the way Carl Truman put it, um, the fog of fine distinctions. We're lost in a fog of fine distinctions here. We know what this is communicating. New York Times picked up on what it was communicating right away. <laughs> And so did every other major outlet in the world that's been trying to uh, get the Roman Catholic Church to change its teaching on sexual ethics. It's the wedge issue. It's the camel in the nose of the tent. It's all that stuff. And so immediately, it's just been remarkable to watch. If you think that they've got their act all together in the Roman Catholic world, you are completely deluded. There is a great deal of disagreement and conflict in the Roman Catholic world. Immediately, the African bishops said, we're not doing that. Even the Dutch bishops said, we're not doing that. Think about it. <laughs> Amsterdam. <laughs> you know, even those guys are like, no way we're doing that. Everyone knows what this is about. It's one of those things where the, the honor of Christ. Who's going to defend the honor of Christ in all of this? So, and the holy profession of the gospel and the preventing of the wrath of God, the preventing of the wrath of God. So God's wrath is poured out on sin, right? So we need to do the best we can to prevent uh, the wrath. And the way you do that is to prevent the sin if you can, right? That's the, that's the way you go about it. Yeah, Mark. Did you bring up um, the three marks of the true church? Yeah, I, I, once upon a time I did, not, not today. <laughs> Just, I, it's interesting in terms of you know, that being the preaching of the gospel and the word, the right administration of the sacraments, and the practice of church discipline. Yeah. And church discipline being, um, I'm going to expand on it, in terms of being in discipline processes and watching you know, historically, that be the place where people break their vows. Right. Do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? It's the great revealer of the heart of, of members as well as of officers. Yeah. Um, because are they actually disciplining? Are they, are, they dis are they protecting the teaching? Yeah. And are they disciplining their members? And are their members receiving the discipline? 
And it, it strikes me in thinking about this and meditating upon it and in the situations we've been that from a Kuyperian sphere sovereignty, yeah. you have the state, you have the family, and you have the church. The state disciplines, they'll fine you, they'll lock you up. You 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 just you just go. You know, you're, you're going with the program. When you're a kid in the family, yeah. you're in the same program. And the church is the only place where you real where your heart is really at is revealed. Yeah. When you're brought to discipline, are you, like you said, did I really have them? Were they really of us or not? Is revealed. When David is confronted with his sin, he's all in. Yeah. He, right. That's a good example to remember that here, here yeah. he's brought something and he's, but in terms of just encouraging everybody here to think about this because this is the place where people fool themselves that they really are a member of the church and that they really believe in the distinctives of the church when it comes to a point where they do need to be told to account and 95 times out of 100 they don't agree yeah yeah that's about my percentage <laughs> so so um let's think about this episode with david because this is really valuable uh so this is the king. This is a man after God's own heart, right? He's not perfect, though. Um, he's kind of messed up, <laughs> right? But the evidence of his regeneration is his response. Now, it's also fascinating to watch uh, how he's confronted. You're familiar with the story? So let me just remind you, in case you don't remember. Um, so there's this episode with David and Bathsheba, right? Uh, now what happens is, you know, uh, David commits adultery. Uh, Bathsheba is another man's wife, Uriah the Hittite. And uh, Uriah is off fighting, and he's where David's supposed to be. This is one of the king, this is like a king's job <laughs> to go, to do this kind of thing. And it's, the way the episode is opened, it's, it's kind, of, kind of fun. It's like baseball season. In the springtime, when kings go to war, <laughs> it's like baseball season. Okay, it's time everybody to get ready to fight. We got some things we're going to fight about. David stays home, right? We don't know why he stays home. Some people have speculated that this was the reason he stayed home. You know, we don't know, but you know, he's just you know one day just kind of wandering around and he sees Bathsheba bathing. This is a ancient city. People did a lot of things on the roof including bathe, and um, David had a bird's eye view, literally. And everything's close together. I mean, this is before automobiles, right? If you go to like an old European city or even East Coast, if you go to certain sections before the car was, everything's in walking distance. You can see, and there's, you know, privacy is a, a challenge. <laughs> and so he sees her and he calls for her and she comes and so on and so forth. Anyway. Next thing you know, she sends him a message, I'm expecting. Oh, great. What do I do? Well, we gotta bring home Uriah. Give him, give him some time off, it's, he's on leave. <laughs> so he, he calls him back, and Uriah is such a, an upstanding guy. He's like, I can't go home and be with my wife and enjoy you know, the blessings of matrimony when my brothers are on the front. 
living in the mud, <laughs> that kind of stuff. And so he's like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm going to just stay in the gate. And the word gets back to, to, to David. He didn't go home. He's like, what? So he says, all right, bring him in. Let's get him drunk. <laughs> so they get him drunk. Still doesn't work. And then finally David says, well, what do we do? Well, we got to kill him. Got to kill him. <laughs> so uh, he sends him back to the front with the letter to, to you know, the, his commander saying, you know, giving the death sentence to Uriah in, a, in effect. You know, put him in the heat of the fighting and withdraw. So that's what they do. And he's dead. And then David gets word about the defeat, and he, initially he's upset. Well, don't you know? And then, he, then, he's, then, he, then he's told, oh, and by the way, Uriah's dead. Oh, well, we all make mistakes. We all, you know, sometimes find ourselves in a bad spot and bad judgment and that kind of thing. So there he is, doubly, you know, condemned. Murder, adultery, bad, really bad. King. Nathan, Nathan the prophet has the job of administering the censure. <laughs> you think about that? You know, kings had a way of like killing people they don't like. In the case he's going. <laughs> that's right, that's right. That's right. How do you, what's your approach? A story. So he goes and he says, David, I got, a, I got something I need to tell you. There's this guy, wealthy man has sheep galore, but for some reason his neighbor, who only had one poor little ewe lamb, he decides he wants that sheep. Has the sheep slaughtered, eats it, etc. Now all the while David's getting incensed. It's not like David has completely lost his sense of right and wrong, right? He's, he's incensed. And, it, and the choice of, of, of the, the, you know, the, the story had something to do with David's background, right? He was a shepherd. He would, under, he would actually identify with a lot of what was going on. And then, you know, he condemns the man. This man deserves to die. And then what does Nathan say? You're the man. And what does, you know, David do at that point? You're crazy. You're accusing the king. No. You're right. The Lord you know, was pleased because his heart was contrite when he was confronted. And this had to be in the court. I mean, there's, there's people looking on, right? Um, it's not like it's just him in the back room. <laughs> and at that moment, do you think, now obviously there were a series of repercussions and there was judgment on David's house. But do you think that some people actually, the regard for David went up during the episode? I suspect there were. Sometimes we play a really stupid hand, and that is if I ever admit I'm wrong, then people won't respect me anymore. Stupid. Why? Because very often everybody in the room knows you're wrong. <laughs> Everyone in the room knows you're wrong, and you're denying you're wrong, and what's that make you look like? A pig-headed idiot. <laughs> That's what it makes you look like, right? You don't actually shore up your authority at all in a situation like that. You actually undermine it. Now, if you get into the habit of this, you know, committing adultery and killing people, <laughs> after a while, people don't take your word anymore when you say you're sorry, right? You know, you really need to change. But uh, 
I think that uh, when we think, like, let's just think about Peter. Don't we, uh, don't we identify with Peter? Don't we find ourselves uh, ashamed of ourselves for having maybe let the Lord down at different points in our lives, not doing what we knew we should do? Um, Peter gave us the example, remorse, repentance, try it better next time. And that's the way leaders should be. Own it. Say, yeah, that was really dumb of me. I, I was wrong. And I'm sorry about that. And now, you, you might be not as wrong as they think you are. <laughs> you know, but if you start to like over-parse the situation, then they're just not going to accept the apology, right? If you could say, yeah, but... Yeah, but now there might be a, a very significant reason to kind of hold back something, but maybe that's for another conversation, All right? Anyway, just some things to think about. But when it comes to this, what does this actually do in terms of uh, underscoring or strengthening the honor due to Christ? Well, you appeal to Christ for forgiveness. I say the Lord has died for my sins, and I and I uh, trust in that. Uh, Sacrifice for my sins. Doesn't mean I don't try to make things right. Doesn't mean you don't pay somebody back if you stole something, right? Doesn't mean that. Uh, doesn't mean you never have to say you're sorry to anybody because Jesus died for you. Some, I've actually come across this mindset. Have you come across this mindset? Jesus forgave it all. Why do you want an apology? That's nuts. Um, if you've done something to somebody, you ought to apologize. They may not forgive you. <laughs> You know, hopefully they will. Uh, yeah. Just also that Christ sits now reigning over the kings of the earth and over all rule and authority. Right. And so anybody who is disobeying what is obviously rightfully rule that's coming from what is instructed in the scripture is dishonoring Christ yeah. in his place of eminence over it all. Yeah. And, and thinking of it just in a judicial, right? Judicial. I mean, if you think about our nation today, where we're at when we pray for the healing of our land, right. I mean, we're we're a nation created by Protestants, mm -hmm. and it was it was a series of of sessions mm -hmm. and pastors who did not teach the correct things, and those who did not correct people when they were going astray and people who did not receive the correction that has led to what we see around us yeah. today that's that's how it happened if you take if you just read any history as to what we looked like yeah. and how we look today the only way that we actually are healed is to restore church discipline yeah, yeah I think that's to right. actually heal our churches and our nation yeah, I think, you know, the judgment begins at the house of God, uh, and for that reason. I think, too, you know, you just read the Old Testament, <laughs> you see the same pattern, you know, over and over again, uh, and how, um, you know, I'm, I'm in Jeremiah right now, so, uh, you know, Jeremiah is told, go and say this to them, they won't listen to you. <laughs> Why am I going? <laughs> Uh, you just do it. So, and that's the other thing. Sometimes the admonition is just to be given. 
even if you don't think it's going to make any difference. You just do it because it's what's supposed to be done. Anyway, it's tough work. It's unpleasant work, but uh, sometimes you, you actually see somebody say, yeah, you're right, about 5% of the time. <laughs> At least that's my, been my experience. I'm, I'd love to see those, those percentages change. I will say, though, that often in the course of the work of the church, long before it gets to that level, people are receiving correction and receiving it well. So it's not like it's always a bad story. Yeah. Just that Jeremiah example, you always you think that when you're reading it, but you realize that when they're in exile mm -hmm. and they're reading Jeremiah yeah, now right. in exile, right. how meaningful it is yeah. to them repenting as a people and restoring themselves to what they're supposed to be yeah. when, when they return. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So the people who are looking on are not even alive sometimes. Um, so there are things that, you know, are remembered, passed down. I had a fascinating uh, experience this week. Plow Magazine uh, had an event and they, they asked me to set it up for them. So I've written for them. Uh, but I'm not a member of the Bruderhof. It's actually the uh, kind of uh, Anabaptist group from Germany that's behind the magazine. and. Um, they were uh, refugees during the Second World War. So they were pacifists. They initially went to England to flee persecution. And then were, the only people who would take them were, the, were, was Paraguay. So they went to Paraguay, lived there for a while, uh, came up into North America after a while. So there's, they're, they're uh, a group that has grown and uh, they've got uh, communities mostly on the East Coast. So anyway, they, they've got a number of readers out here and they wanted me to set up a, uh, an event for the readers. So there was a couple that came out uh, from uh, the Catskills, one of the communities there, and they were just so kind of nice. I mean, really, really nice people, right? And uh, almost nice to the point of naivete, you know, that kind, that kind of niceness. And uh, we went out to eat and they shared with me the story of the Bruderhof and just the remarkable providences of God and how they were preserved during those very dark years when the Nazis uh, were persecuting them. Uh, and, but their leaders were not um, plaster saints and they were able to like deal with that. So you know, one of the things I love about the Old Testament and even the New Testament is all the warts are there. You ever think about that? All the warts are there to be remembered. So I'm from a, the tribe of Judah. Oh, Judah, we remember that guy. <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff, right? Uh, so even the best guys had bad days and, the, and they don't paper over it. They don't like pretend it didn't happen. I think in our day, because we don't believe in God, we can't live with the faults of our ancestors. That's why we tear their statues down. We will not honor anybody with the blemish. Thomas Jefferson. 
we won't honor anyone who has a blemish. In other words, a moral blemish. Yeah. What do you, what's your opinion on the people in the church broadly, not a specific denomination, who kind of, I would say honor the blemish too much because these people did all these things, therefore you cannot complain about someone doing that to you. Like, very yeah, well, I think that's not a very good practice. <laughs> I think that, the, that we need to confront and you know, it ought to be applied. So you know, in those cases, there, there was discipline. Uh, if we think about Peter even, or you know, obviously Israel uh, and, the, and the work God did to punish sin. So I think um, anyone who uses that argument for give me a pass uh, is misusing the scriptures. Um, I guess what I'm getting at is more like um, we can still honor Abraham even though he sometimes, you know, was behaving less than honorably. David's a perfect example yeah. of all that's written about him and his blemishes stand mm -hmm. out to us. Yeah, of course, because we have Christ who was without sin, we still have an example that we can point to and say, be like him. And when Paul says, you know, follow me as I follow Christ, and he says, you know, not that I have already attained this. He, you know, he notes that he's got ongoing, you know, things that he's dealing with. We don't know everything, but, um, you know, well, we do know that sometimes he didn't have a whole lot of grace for somebody who leaves town. <laughs> what? No, no, John Mark's not coming. <laughs> the kid's a loser. <laughs> Kid can't be relied on. He can't be depended on. He's just no. Leave him home. And then Barney, you know, like you would expect. But give him a second chance, man. <laughs> nope, nope. He's not coming. And then later on, he's like, you know, like I said last week, uh, I think it's, uh, I think it's First Timothy four four. I think that's it, where Paul says, "Hey," he says this to Timothy, his, you know, John Mark's replacement. Make sure you bring Mark along. He's really big help. So eventually, Mark got into the good graces of Paul. But anyway. Um, any other thoughts about the particular passage here? Let me see if we want to. Um, burning the wrath of God. Let me just finish this so we can get to the next paragraph next week. Uh, which might justly fall upon the church. That's an interesting statement. Sometimes judgments justly fall upon churches. If they should suffer his covenant and the seals thereof to be profaned, by notorious and obstinate offenders. Notorious and obstinate offenders. So uh, uh, you know, we're talking about people that uh, everyone knows the, the sin and they are, are unwilling to, to own it as sin and say, that's me, right? like uh, David did. Now, I guess one last thing I would say is that um, just because a person has been restored to fellowship uh, doesn't mean that you don't remember 
the weaknesses of the person. Uh, sometimes I think people assume uh, that because they've been forgiven and restored that we're going to give them back everything that they had before uh, without some kind of probationary period or something like that, you know, in order to be careful with this particular matter. I think this is a wisdom thing. So it depends on the nature. Like if you, if you had like somebody who embezzled some funds from the church, um, maybe the treasurer was pocketing some, some money, didn't tell anybody, and then it was discovered um, and confronted, and there was genuine repentance. I don't think you need to give the job back, <laughs> right? You just say, okay, this is a, there are other things you can do, <laughs> but we're not going to make you the treasurer again. Anyway, I hope that makes sense. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, helping us as we think about this uh, challenging uh, subject. Uh, we all know that we fall short of the ideal in many ways in our own lives. Nevertheless, uh, we're called uh, with the upward call of Christ and, uh, to heaven with, in Christ Jesus. And uh, we know that the standard is something that we should strive to embody more and more all the time. Help us to do that. Help us, Lord, to, cons you know, to keep in mind all the things that we've talked about, uh, particularly as we deal with the very challenging matter of having to deal with sin in the church. In Christ's name, amen.